Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out how plants can adapt to some pretty strange environments. Now, of course, as our climate changes, we get more CO2 in the atmosphere. And plants like CO2, they use it for food. So will they get any benefit? We find out about a 33-year study that investigates this topic. Plus, what happens with volcanic soil and how plants can adapt to these strange and strange soil types quickly through some interesting evolution. When you think about volcanoes, the first thing that often comes to mind is, of course, the immense danger. The lava flows, the pyroclastic flows, the ash clouds that fall onto the ground. All of these things make volcanoes, well, dangerous, at least in the imminent sense. But then why do people live around and alongside active volcanoes? It seems a really hazardous place to live. But the thing is, there's actually a lot of benefits for living in a volcanic region especially when it comes to farming. Now, volcanic environments can be a pretty good location for farming because volcanic deposits are often enriched with elements like magnesium and potassium. And in particular, when a volcanic flow or an ash fall starts to weather over maybe hundreds or thousands of years, you actually have a process which releases some of these elements and even creates a great rich layer of natural fertilizer. Even a thin layer of ash can act as a natural fertilizer, producing increased harvest in the immediate years following an eruption, provided it has that chance to, as I said, be rained on and broken down into the soil. And even volcanic eruptions 35,000 years ago can actually change the area around those volcanoes, creating valleys rich in nutrients in the soil in an otherwise other barren and difficult place to grow. This is exactly what happens in, say, Naples in Italy or Sicily with Mount Vesuvius or Mount Etna. The soil-rich areas on these large volcanic mountains and the valleys around them, well, they are great areas to farm, which is in stark contrast to the actual conditions of the geology around the other areas around that that aren't as close to the volcano, which often have poor soils, which generally tend to be limestone-rich. So volcanoes can be pretty good for plants, and that is a great thing if you are a farmer trying to grow in a certain volcanic region. But what would a plant need in order to be able to grow in not just volcanic enriched soil, but actually on the active edge of a volcano, on the part of a volcano that is likely to erupt? That's a little bit more dangerous. So how do plants manage to grow there and grow in these strange and unusual soil conditions? That's what researchers from the Max Planck Institute have been diving into and published in the journal Science Advances. Lead author on this paper was Emmanuel Tergamina and principal investigator was Angela Hancock from Max Planck Institute for Plant Breeding Research in Köln, Germany. Now, a lot of different research groups involved in putting together this paper in Science Advances. And what they were trying to really analyze here is what things plants need in order to be able to grow in really wide and novel soil environments. Now, for plants, there's a crucial step for normal plant growth. And thus, if this is better or worse or better performing or worse performing in a certain plant breed or variety, then you get, you know, good crops or bad crops. And this is nutrient homeostasis. Now, finding exactly which part of the genetic changes allows a plant to have better 
nutrient homeostasis process in different types of soils will help researchers understand, okay, which soils are good and which soils are bad, but also which gene governs which soils are good and bad for that particular plant species. The problem is that the plant genome is, is really huge and trying to find and pinpoint an exact gene that governs this homeostasis process or the ability to adapt to different kinds of soil conditions is really difficult. Now, research team had been looking previously into the population adaptions of the molecular model plant Rhodopsis dalina, commonly referred to as Thalecress. Now, this is from the colonized Cape Verde Islands from North Africa, and it adapts with new mutations from after the colonization period. So it's a really interesting place where you can track changes, and it's used as basically like we use mice as a model plant in the laboratory environment. But the scientists focused on the Thalecress population from a particular island around there, from Cape Verde, and in particular, Pico di Fogo. Now, Pico di Fogo is a stratovolcano. So this is an interesting thing because you can see how this plant has spread throughout the island region. And you have, like with the case of birds, finches, for example, uh, and how you on an island, you can get up different population groups diverging from each other. Common starting point, divergent evolution. And it was you to track the variation in gene pretty interestingly because you can see exactly what gene led to the diversion in properties between those species. Now, that's effectively what they're doing here with the example of Pico di Fogo, because Pico di Fogo is an active stratovolcano. So the adaptions that the plants have used to grow in this soil are effectively perhaps the adaptions that enable growing in volcanic soils. So when they dived into this, researchers like Emanuel Tergamina found some pretty surprising results. While the plants from Fogo appeared to be healthy in their natural environment, they actually grew poorly in standard soil. So when they did a chemical analysis of the soils from the island of Fogo, what they found is that it was really lacking in manganese. This element is crucial for energy production and regulating proper plant growth. If they looked at plant leaves grown in from the Fogo plants in regular soil, not the island soil, but regular soil, what they saw is that these the leaves themselves actually contained high levels of manganese, which means the plants had basically evolved a mechanism to really boost their manganese uptake because, well, there was none of it in the soil that they were used to and they needed it for their growth. So if they put into a different type of soil, they, their mechanism you know, starts to go into overdrive and, and act a bit haywire. So this plant is really adapted for this manganese deplete soil but when you put it in regular soil, oh, it doesn't know what to do. It, it, it ends up with too much of it and doesn't grow as well. This is the kind of adaption specification that you often see in a species that is evolved for a particular ecological niche and is really good in that. But as soon as you take them away from it, they tend to struggle. And this is what's happening here. It's an example of a plant developing an ecological niche adaption. Now, by sensing this was a model plant with really good genetic mapping and also by using the evolutionary analysis, they can see which genes enable these plants to actually grow effectively in Fogo soil, which is incredibly limited in its amount of manganese. Now, it took a couple of steps. They were able to trace back actually through the genetics of the development of this plant. The first evolutionary demarcation that was taken was the disruption of the primary iron transport gene, IRT1, and basically eliminated that gene. Now, disruption of this gene in the natural population was pretty incredible to see because this gene pretty much exists intact in all other species of this stalecrest plant all over the world. 
So it's a real obvious step where this plant has gone, okay, we just forget that, we don't need it, let's do something else. And that was what the first big step it took to developing a tailored version of itself, tailored species for this soil environment. Now, once you know, one of the plants sort of took on, it really swept across all of the Fogo plant population. And now all of the Fogo thalcress actually carry this mutation. And using CRISPR, the researchers examined the functional effects of this IRT disruption and found that what it did was actually increase the leaf magnetese accumulation. And that was a major contributor to this, this sort of effect they saw in the way in which the plant grows in the magnetese depleted soil. Problem is that if you take away this mechanism, the primary iron transport gene, it enables them to get manganese in the leaves, that's great, helps it grow in the manganese low soil, but it comes at a cost, a, a really big cost. It severely reduces the amount of iron present in the leaves. So the plant had to develop another adaption. Okay, it adapted to be able to grow in this crazy soil with low manganese, but then it needed to find a way to get iron into itself. And that's where the metal transported gene and ramp one was duplicated in it and really did lots of parallel ways. Now these duplications spread rapidly across nearly all the failed crest plants on Fogo, which carry multiple copies of this NRAMP1 in their genomes. Now what this effect does is by having this repetition of this particular gene, it means that it effectively boosts the output of this gene function, which is essentially used to increase the iron transport. So the first step adaption, getting rid of this iron transport gene, enabled it, the plant to grow in the manganese depleted soil by increasing how much ends up in the leaves. But then the plant had a problem. It still needed to transport metal somehow, so then it used lots and lots of copies of this NRAMP1 gene to effectively boost and eliminate its then iron deficiency that it had as a result. So you're having this two-step process. It develops a solution, uh, it still had some problems, and develops another band-aid fix to get through that. And after a while, this adaption enabled this thalcrest to grow pretty well in this really strange soil. So by piecing back through the genetic study of this particular plant, the researchers have a really good understanding of what steps this plant had to take to survive in some crazy soil. And they could track the evolution of this genome over time. And it's really important for scientists to understand this because knowing how plants evolve to better fit into an ecological niche means that for a plant breeder, they know which things to try next and understanding how those genes function and what substitutions you can make. There's a lot to learn by seeing how it's done in nature. And this simple two-step process, doing one substitution and then, okay, get, taking a fix to counter whatever problems were caused by that initial substitution, has worked in this case in nature and is a technique that could be used when doing other gene splicing techniques or developing new plant species. But it's really fascinating to see how this plant had to go through some pretty radical steps, eliminating the main way of transporting iron, for example, or metals, in order for it to be able to grow in the strange volcanic soils. Now, it's a great model of how evolution can work in plants and an interesting way of what it can teach us about how to develop and breed new crop species by understanding the genome of the Thalcress. This is some great research led by researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Plant Breeding Research, published in the journal Science Advances, with the lead author on this paper, Manuel Tergamina.
Now, global warming and climate change means we're going to have an increased concentration of CO2 in our atmosphere. That's what's causing the climate change and global warming. But plants eat, more or less, CO2. So if there's more food, aren't plants better off? That is an interesting question raised by a number of researchers have been investigating this in a long-running 33-year-old field experiment, which results of which were just published in the journal Science Advances. Now, this work was done in collaboration between the Chinese Academy of Sciences along with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. And it looked at what happens in wetlands. Now, by wetlands uh, as one of the areas that's most likely to be impacted by rising sea levels because these intertidal zones, uh, if the sea level rises, well, that, a lot of that zone then just moves or gets eliminated. What was hoped is perhaps if, if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, it could lead to extra plant growth in that area, enabling those coastal wetlands to grow fast enough in a way to outpace the rate of sea level rise. Now, that is a hopeful theory, but researchers wanted to see if it actually would pan out in practice. And, well, what they found is not, in fact, good news. The reason is, as researcher and lead author from the paper, Shudwun Zhu, points out, too much water is a stress, environmental stress, for plants responds to high CO2. Now, this study took place at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Centre, SERC's Global Change Research Wetland. It's a research site, Menigal, runs on the western shore of the coast of Maryland. The wetland is home to several weird futuristic experiments where scientists are trying to simulate the climate of the year 2100. And for this particular study, the researchers relied on a starting experiment which began in 1987. And it's one of the world's longest running field experiments on how rising CO2 impacts plants. Inside 15 open-topped chambers, scientists have been slowly and surely raising the CO2 concentration by an additional 340 parts per million, roughly doubling atmospheric CO2 levels since 1987. And another of the 15 chambers serves as controls with no extra CO2 pumped in. Now the team focused on 10 of these chambers which had C3 plants in them, a group of plants that are known to really respond super well to high CO2 environments. And this C3 group of plants includes roughly 85% of species of plant on Earth. So, okay, great, good area to investigate. Now, about for the first two decades of the experiment, the plant growth in the high CO2 chambers really did actually do quite well. And above ground, the plants in the high CO2 chambers grew an average 25% more than the plants in the control group in the untreated chamber. But underground, the effect was way more powerful. High CO2 triggered extra growth, about 35% more root growth. And root growth is really, really important for survival, especially in wetlands, as the roots help the wetlands to build soil and keep the foundations growing upwards. Even though the sea might be rising more, these extensive root systems keeps the plant tethered in place. And that's really important in a wetland when you're subject to all kinds of conditions. So even though the elevated sea level CO2 contributes to sea level rise, it also helps improve the marsh's ability to accreate and grow vertically in the years of the rise. Problem is, scientists saw that after a while, this effect declined. And pretty much after around, pretty much after the year 2005, 
and was the last 14 years or so of data in the study, there was no average difference in plant growth between the high CO2 and the normal chambers. So yeah, there's a boost for having extra CO2 available, but it's not an exponential rise. It does have a tapering off effect. Now, there's a couple of things that could be causing this. Temperature, the saltiness of the water during the growing season, or the pr missing presence of critical soil nitrogens like nitrogen. Only sea level rise showed any link to the plant level growth. Once the sea levels in the wetland rose 15 centimetres above where they began in 1987, all of those benefits from the higher seizure growth just disappeared. So in some ways, it's a race. It's a race between what the CO2 concentration is and what the sea level rise is doing. Because the more water there is, the more flooding there is, well, it means the plant it doesn't get any benefit from all that extra CO2 because it's just trying to survive all that extra stress. Because sea level rise can shut down any extra growth for a pretty simple reason. As the waters rise, the wetlands flood more frequently. As the climate changes, they get more large and major catastrophic flooding events. In a flood, plants need oxygen as well as CO2, and wetland plants evolve to get most of the oxygen from the air rather than water. Plants are mostly aerobic oxygen breathing organisms so and that includes in their roots so if you add more water well it's harder for the plants to get oxygen to breathe and, and in some ways the plants drown if they don't dry and grow fast enough upwards to outpace the sea level rise then well they start to not have enough oxygen and that leads to some pretty debilitating plant growth or rather a flaw in it you don't get any boost from the extra co2 now, this is an important thing. Wetlands may be able to grow fast enough to keep pace with the rising sea levels, but if they don't, then they don't get any of that extra growing speed by just having that extra CO2 around. So it goes to show that tackling climate change and CO2 emissions and concentration in the atmosphere is incredibly important. You can't just rely on the fact that it's going to produce extra food for the plants and they'll be fine because, well, Extra CO2 also means larger flooding events, more water in some cases, particularly in wetlands, which, well, causes problems for the plants as well. So it's all linked, and you want to tackle climate change really by keeping emissions at a manageable level. And plants can get a little bit of a boost from having extra CO2, but it's not going to undo the effects of climate change that need to be tackled. This is some really fascinating research in a 33-year running long study published in the journal Science Advances with lead author Shun Wun Su. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From a study into the impact of climate change and CO2 concentrations and how plants may benefit from them, as well as how plants can thrive in some strange soils. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.